Hey guys, I'm Ed Chung, and welcome to another episode of Thinking Cap. Danielle is still on vacation this week, so it's just me again, and my voice is hoarse. I caught a summer bug, maybe a summer flu. Uh, Chris, our producer, is looking at me in our studio like, what are you doing in the office today? But um, we're here because this past week has been another busy one for President Trump. He's traveled to France for a drama-filled G7 summit. And in light of this, we'll be revisiting a conversation we had last year with former Ambassador Wendy Sherman. As you remember, uh, Ambassador Sherman was the lead U.S. negotiator during talks with Iran in the Obama administration over the country's nuclear program. And ripping up that Iran deal has been a focus point of uh, Trump's foreign policy strategy, which is why we want to talk about it here. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to highlight a few headlines that have been driving the news this week. Um, at the G7, President Trump made a couple uh, real interesting propositions. Uh, the first, he advocated for Russia to be readmitted into the G7 and for them to participate in the summit to be held in the U.S. in 2020. Now, for anybody who, for some reason doesn't think that this relationship between President Trump and Russia that started in the campaign, that started prior to the campaign, uh, has not been ongoing, continuing. If you think that this isn't shady, at the very least, if you don't think that this is shady, there's problems with the way that you're analyzing this because he has been, he meaning President Trump, has been a champion of Russia's interests, and why would we in the United States or any G7 country want to readmit Russia? What have they done to show that they can be trusted to be readmitted? After all, remember why they were kicked out, because they were being aggressive towards independent states, their neighbors. They were, they were interfering. They were interfering in other countries, policies, elections, domestic policies, the things that they were they they did in the U.S. they were doing in other countries before that. But yet, President Trump is advocating on their behalf. In addition to that, he wanted to have the next summit at his resort in Doral, in southern in South Florida. Now, again. If there's anybody out there listening who doesn't think that this president is using his office to benefit him personally and financially, then I got to question how you are analyzing and taking in news. He is literally proposing to have a, an official U.S. government function at his resort, which will bring in hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, for him personally. That is the essence of conflict of interest for the president of the United States. But that's just a typical week here uh, in this country under the Trump administration. One last thing before we get to our interview with Wendy Sherman. Next week will be our last episode of Thinking Cap. After two great seasons of podcasting and chronicling the ongoings of Washington with you, we'll be bringing this project to a close. But don't worry. Uh, you won't be missing Danielle and me too much. We're launching a new podcast in September called The Tent. 
And the tent will be a place to talk about politics, policies, and progress, not only here in D.C., but across the country. So keep an eye out on Twitter, of course, for updates from myself, at DC. That's at DC, And from Daniela, at dgibber123. That's at dgibber123. And now to our previously recorded interview with Ambassador Shirk. Ambassador, thanks so much for joining us here on Thinking Cap. Great to be with you both. So there's a lot of news recently about uh, things that you have expertise and familiarity with, uh, especially nuclear, well, denuclearization or potentially or hopefully denuclearization, but especially in North Korea and Iran. Um, and recent conversations or discussions in the, in, in the media and the press indicate that um, things are happening again in North Korea. Um, what's your take generally of where U.S diplomatic efforts are in North Korea and this uh, possible second summit that we're going to have in the coming weeks or months. First of all, um, it's good that we're not at war. (laughs) That's a a a big plus, right? And given that we had a president who talked about fire and fury uh, (laughs) with North Korea and up the possibility we would find ourselves at least inadvertently at war, it's a good thing we're not at war. It's a good thing North Korea is not testing their nuclear weapons or their long-range ballistic missiles, though I think they have everything they need, and so anything further they can probably do by computer, so I'm not sure it's much of an advance. Hmm. Um, The South Korean summit that just occurred with the North has some positive possibilities in it, uh, in terms of the North saying that they would close down their launch facility and allow international inspectors to watch, which would be a first. Uh, that they might consider uh, taking down Yongbyon, which is their nuclear plutonium plant. Uh, But they said all of this was dependent upon steps by the United States, which are unspecified, and they want us to declare an end to the war, which would mean our troops would come off the Korean Peninsula either sooner or later, uh, and who knows what else they want. And then, even with some of those positive potential signs, Uh, We know from open source intelligence that they are continuing to build nuclear weapons. They are continuing their missile program. They are advancing what they know, so they have more chips on the table. I'm very glad that uh, Steve Began's been named as a special envoy. I know Steve quite well. He is a capable professional. But uh, I've uh, said to him uh, that although uh, I knew when I worked for President Obama and President Clinton, that the rug would never be pulled out from under me. I knew what the policy was. (laughs) I don't think Steve can count on that. So even if his intentions are good, uh, even if Secretary Pompeo's intentions are good, which I have my doubts about, uh, you know, they don't control this. Only the president does. So to answer your question, long-windedly a little bit, uh, a second summit, uh, unless it's part of a very detailed, specific, and disciplined plan, it'll turn out another photo op. I hate the fact that we have to laugh to just kind of make sure that we're not taking, I mean, there's just some like um, sanity or it's, I don't know what it's a, if it's a reflex or anything like that. It's, but. it's a very strange place to be in for me to ask the question of, so can they work around Trump? Like how, how much can get done uh, without him? And, you know, to your point about pulling the rug out, you always have to kind of worry about that, but can real progress be made when, when he's the president? 
don't know the answer to that question. That is the 64,000, probably 64 million, or let's <laughs> yeah. go up to a trillion Inflation. in a deficit. Yeah. We're into a trillion in a deficit. Uh, so uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, it's been reported that uh, Steve Began will go to Vienna to meet with his counterparts, that Pompeo will see uh, the North Koreans on the margins of the UN General Assembly next week, and I'll be up at the General Assembly. A lot will be going on, and we'll see where things go. I- I'm very concerned that uh, the administration will fall short on denuclearization. They'll figure out something and be able to declare victory, even though we will not have removed the threat. Uh, and uh, needless to say, if President Obama had tried that gig, uh, he would have been uh, yelled down uh, at the very least. So could you remind us, it seemed like uh, in the first summit, there were four points, I think three or four points of what was needed or what was stated um, for American goals to be met in terms of denuclearization. And I, I don't remember if it was three or four, but there were some specific things um, that nobody got really in writing. There was nothing, no, there was no obviously no treaty that was signed or anything close to that. But uh, it just seemed like it was lip service more than anything else, and that, but, and these lofty goals would never have been met. Right. That document that came out of that, Singa- out, out of that Singapore summit was the thinnest document of yeah. any. Uh, negotiation between North Korea and the South Koreans, with us, with anybody for that matter. And uh, it was very unspecific. Uh, And uh, the first thing that we really need from North Korea is an inventory of what they have, Um, a full declaration, as it's called, of all their facilities, all their capabilities, because otherwise you'll know whether you're getting anywhere. And there is nobody who doesn't wonder or even know uh, that there are secret facilities that we know nothing about. One other uh, interesting point of this, uh, you just mentioned the bilateral summit that happened between the North and the South Koreans uh, just recently. Uh, it seems like there's more progress or more activity happening bilaterally than with multi-parties, especially with the United States, kind of seemingly at the margins or more marginalized. Is that your sense as well? What I think is happening here is South Korea and President uh, Moon Jae-in has been very smart uh, about trying to make sure that South Korea stays at the center of these negotiations. After all, they're the ones who share the most dangerous border with North Korea, and any military action would be catastrophic for Seoul, which is only 30 kilometers from the DMZ. Uh, So uh, their stakes here are really quite high, higher than ours in the first instance, quite frankly. Uh, So they've put themselves at the center of it. I think President Trump likes that because he feels like they're working for him. But quite frankly, they're working for themselves. And their objectives are somewhat different than ours. They would like reunification under their terms. Uh, They're moving in that direction. I think as soon as President Trump hugged Kim Jong-un, sort of unthinkable by any (laughs) other figure, both China and South Korea and Russia uh, knew that they could probably ease off on the maximum pressure campaign. Uh, And so uh, Seoul is trying to set up a joint office north of the DMZ, reopen uh, the facility that uh, worked uh, to create small business uh, and otherwise build relations with North Korea, even doing a joint bid for uh, the Olympics. So uh, their objectives are somewhat different than ours. So you mentioned earlier that uh, you know Kim Jong Un will he will want something from the United States uh, in this whole deal. 
what is what is the one thing that worries you that we might be willing to to give up to reach some sort of grand deal? Well, my worry is that we don't actually want to reach a grand deal, uh, that we will leave North Korea with its nuclear weapons. And my sense, uh, and I, I write about this some in, in my book, Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence, uh, that uh, the North's view of what denuclearization means is quite different than our version of that. And uh, I think that the administration is likely to fall short of what I would consider denuclearization. And uh, no matter who's negotiating, it's going to take a long time to get there. But I think the administration will declare victory quite short of what's needed. By the way, your uh, pronunciation on uh, Korean terms, my, my uh, parents are going to listen to this and then like berate me for you being better at pronouncing pronounce Korean words than I am. So <laughs> I appreciate uh, I appreciate the coming conversation that we're going to have too. Um, but speaking of your book, in your book you talk about uh, your role as lead negotiator for the Iran nuclear uh, treaty that is now, the United States is no longer part of that. I mean, when that happened and the lead up to that, what, what, what were your thoughts, um, especially you poured years into that? I mean, what was the first reaction that you had from that? Paramount for me, quite frankly, is what it would mean for U.S. national security. Uh, sure, it hurts when you work on something that hard to have it taken apart. Uh, I felt for President Obama, for Secretary Kerry, Secretary Moniz, the, my core team of about 15 interagency folks, and the literally hundreds in the U.S. government and in every other government uh, that was part of this deal. Um, and uh, the president has, in fact, and Secretary Pompeo uh, and Brian Hook, who's the Iran envoy, has just said that uh, they're going to go for a treaty. We actually didn't do a treaty. We did an executive agreement. Uh, and uh, the Iranians have now said, uh, you left this agreement, which was agreed to by the UN Security Council in 15 to 0. Uh, so it was an international agreement, not just a U.S. agreement. Uh, and the Iranians aren't interested in sitting down with this administration for any kind of a deal. Uh, so sure, it hurt personally, but what hurts the most is the risk to American national security. So where does that leave us? So what are, I am very confused about what the next steps are here. Well, you're confused for good reason, <laughs> uh, because the administration's policy is quite unclear to, I think, all of us. Um, so you're very insightful in that. <laughs> okay. uh, it is, uh, I think what they're trying to do is by reimposing the sanctions, so squeeze uh, Iran uh, economically that the Iranian people will rise up and throw over their government. So it's a soft coup mm. approach. Regime change again. Right. Yeah. Regime yeah. change by another name. There are so many problems with that. Uh, first of all, we're really hurting the Iranian people in the process. Uh, we're saying we're not credible, reliable partners because Iran has complied with the deal. Uh, they haven't gone back to trying to get nuclear weapons. The International Atomic Energy, Energy Agency has said, I think, now 11 or 12 times that they are complying. So America is really isolated from everybody else who thinks the deal is working. Um, the administration wants to get a treaty that would include Iran's behavior in the region, human rights. Uh, state sponsorship of terror, all of those things. And although in an ideal world, who wouldn't want that? Uh, if you do that, you're likely to get a deal where Iran says, okay, maybe we'll tell Hezbollah to lay off rockets this month uh, into Israel, but we want more advanced centrifuges 
in the meantime. So you're negotiating against yourself mm -hmm. in essence. And of course, the U.S. would have to put more on the table and maybe the president's willing to put the primary embargo that we have against Iran on the table. Uh, whether that is viable or not uh, remains to be seen. But in the first instance, Iran, which is a culture of resistance, is not ready to go to the table. And the last point I'll make is painfully, uh, the Iranian regime is very good at oppressing its people mm -hmm. uh, and their ability to put down uh, any kind of an uprising is uh, painfully uh, quite good. So speaking of ideologies, I want to talk a little about what's happening in other parts of the world, specifically in, in Europe and this this frightening rise of um, fascism and, you know, a false populism, I like to call it. My sister lives in Rome mm. and she's like, do you mm. know Steve Bannon lives here now? And that he's advising like our major party. And I said, well, that's terrifying for you. Um, you know, what do you make of what's happening um, overseas right now? Well, I think that what's happening overseas has been happening in the world for quite some time. In 2002, the Pew uh, Research Center did a study in 44 countries, a lot of them emerging markets, and what they found is that people liked globalization because they got better music, better films, and they got U.S. blue jeans. Uh, my favorite piece of data from that uh, survey was that the Vietnamese loved cell phones, <laughs> but only 10% of them had cell phones. Uh -huh. But it was just the notion that you could have control of your life, that you could be connected to technology. But in spite of all of that, they were very, very concerned about modernity and about losing their identity and who they were and their way of life. And I think that came home to roost in the developed world as well, when there has been a growing, and the Center for American Progress has been talking about this for a long time, the growing gap between the rich and the poor and people in the middle class feeling like their options were disappearing. Uh, and here in the U.S., we saw that uh, pardon me for all you 55-year-old white guys out there. I'm married to a slightly older white guy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in the middle of our country who lost his manufacturing job uh, to uh, globalization and technology, probably more so than to trade, uh, thought, well, now I'm supposed to take a computer coding class, and in two years I can earn half of what I did. I still have to put two kids through college, and my health insurance premiums have gone up. And women can go to work, and those nice people down the street who I sort of just didn't pay attention to, they can get married now, and what's that all about? So where do I fit? Where do I stand? And our country doesn't look like me anymore, and that will happen more and more. So who am I? And I think that certainly has happened in Europe, particularly with the immigration population. Europe has never been as comfortable with immigration as the U.S. used to be, mm -hmm. not so much today, but as we have traditionally been, and assimilation's been much more difficult in Europe because of that approach to immigration and to migration. And so I think what your, your sister's seeing in Italy, and it certainly has happened in Italy, is what we saw in Brexit, what we almost saw in France, and quite frankly, Macron, mm -hmm. although not the far right, thank heavens, created a new party, said, I wasn't the past, I'm the future. He's now facing some of the challenges of reality. So this is a worldwide change where people are looking for certainty and orthodoxy. And uh, that certainty uh, often means they turn to autocrats as leaders because it creates some false populism, as you uh, quite well articulated. Uh, and I think what happens is ultimately people wake up and say, what did I give away? What did I lose? I didn't get a better future. 
uh, this can't last and this can't be. So similar things are happening in China where uh, there's a, a religious minority population with Muslims uh, and reports have come out in the recent months of what amounts to be detention camps mm -hmm. uh, of large uh, of a large scale thousands of Chinese Muslims uh, who are detained what is uh, what can the US do now if anything based on where we are under Trump uh, foreign policy or could we have done something I even in uh, what I think some what most of us in this room would call better times I mean is there any kind of uh, uh, diplomacy or any other types of um, power that could be exerted uh, to protect uh, uh, these types of religious minorities? Sadly, I think we've lost any moral authority we had to do that. When you put five-year-old children in a detention, when you go in detention for coming across the Mexican border from Central America because their parents are so afraid they'll die if they stay in their country, you know, I think mothers everywhere will do anything for their children. I certainly would do anything for my daughter, for my grandsons. Uh, and these moms and dads thought their kids were such at risk, they took the risk of bringing them to the United States and even separating from them. Uh, but we now are having little children still in detention months later mm -hmm. and have asked uh, for, the, for the courts to allow us to keep kids in detention beyond the 20 days we're supposed to keep them in detention. So we've lost moral authority in that regard. When people look at our uh, confirmation process for the Supreme Court and they see that we will not listen to a woman who says that the nominee uh, sexually assaulted her in high school as if because boys will be boys, quite mm -hmm. unquote, you know, quote unquote, doesn't matter anymore is an outrageous comment for someone who's going to get a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. Quite frankly, it's an outrageous statement uh, for any young man. If that was a young man of color, the reaction would be, I think, substantially different. Uh, someone, uh, you know, tweeted today, uh, I think, with no uh, meaning that it's any less concerning. But when young men say that priests have abused them, no one doubts that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. now they're doubting uh, women uh, being assaulted. Uh, we shouldn't doubt anyone uh, who believes they have been sexually assaulted. We should take them at their word and help them to recover from that. Uh, and uh, I hope the church is doing whatever it needs to do, and I would hope we would do whatever we need to do. So I think we've sadly lost our moral authority to lecture anyone else or to tell them they shouldn't do what they're doing, particularly when w the president wanted to have a travel ban against all Muslims. Mm -hmm. I, I think in other administrations, we did have moral authority. We could speak out. We did push for a human rights dialogue with China, for instance, and had one ongoing in the Obama administration. Uh, we could link arms with the European Union, which has a human rights dialogue. Uh, to try to deal with these issues, have international conferences that we'd invite the Chinese to, uh, and take this up privately in the first instance and publicly where appropriate uh, with the Chinese uh, about what they are doing. It's really quite horrific. So in your private conversations that you have with leaders across the world, do, you, do they think we will get this moral authority back? Do they look at Trump as sort of a blip on the radar screen in American history and that the, the bones, the structure of our democracy is strong enough to withhold him? Or do they feel like this could be a permanent shift in a very scary direction? I think like the rest of us, they're not entirely sure. For myself, I am confident we will get through this. Uh, 
I think that leaders around the world hope we will. Uh, they are facing, as you already pointed out, some of their own challenges in their own countries. They understand that this is not just about Donald Trump. President Obama, when he gave his speech a few days ago, mm -hmm. uh, you know, was quite, I thought, clear by saying this didn't begin with Trump. He's a symptom, not the cause. And I think those of us who are progressives need to confront that those causes and have answers for them. Uh, because it, if we have answers for them, then we will be much more effective at ensuring that, A, we everybody goes and votes uh, in November and that we at least take back the House, if not the Senate too, and governorships and state legislatures, and that we ensure that Trump does not continue in 2020. I think we can survive four years. I think uh, if for some reason Trump stayed president for eight years, we would have a very difficult time regaining our status. So uh, you mentioned uh, the, the your, you referenced the Kavanaugh hearings um, and uh, everything that, especially the uh, Professor Ford or Professor Blasey's um, allegations and her uh, her statement that it's not being believed, um, and it's not being believed by Republican senators who, who, as part of the Judiciary Committee, they're all men. And they're the ones who are going to be literally sitting in judgment of this situation uh, in the coming days, maybe not in the coming days. We'll see how everything turns out. Um, you recently had an op-ed uh, that recalled uh, 1991 Clarence Thomas and Nita Hill. Uh, what's your thoughts on how, um, what the current situation is just generally, especially it just seems like a redo of, of what we've seen before? Yeah. Um I guess in some ways I was fortunate, in some ways not so much, to uh, be asked by uh, the legal team and communications team for Anita Hill to join them uh, to help out as a strategist uh, who knew the Hill to help them understand Congress and what was happening. Uh, so I spent the weekend with her and her team. And as I said in the op-ed, it was one of the most dismal weekends of my life. The Democrats uh, thought it was a hearing. Uh, the Republicans uh, thought it was a trial. Uh, the Re Democrats tried to be fair. Uh, the Republicans uh, went for her throat. And so uh, I am concerned we're having a replay of that this time. Uh, we even have some of the same members mm -hmm. uh, who were there in 1991. and Saying the same things. Saying well. the same things yeah. they said in 1991. And uh, it is... Uh, so distressing. There was an FBI background investigation about Anita Hill's uh, concerns um, uh, in 1991. I have no idea why there can't be now. Uh, she is willing to talk to the FBI. She took a polygraph. I haven't heard Judge Kavanaugh say he will take a polygraph, no. that he mm -hmm. will talk to the mm -hmm. FBI. You would think if he wants to clear his name, he would welcome an FBI review of the background um, uh, talk to corroborating witnesses under oath uh, uh, that they would face a felony charge if, in fact, they lied. Uh, the fact that Mark Judd, uh, who was in the room, won't uh, mm -hmm. testify, won't speak with the FBI, uh, I think says a lot. Uh, and uh, indeed, I believe uh, Dr. Ford, Professor Blasey, I believe what she has said and what she experienced. She has no reason. Mm -hmm to come forward with this right. and destroy her life unless she believes it is her civic duty 
And it is important that we not put on the Supreme Court someone who would do this. Right. Among the most outrageous things are people saying, A, that his life will be ruined. He's still a judge. He's Lifetime. fine. Yeah. Lifetime. Yeah, he's doing okay. I'm not worried about him. But to your point that, right, she has everything to lose. She already has lost things. She already had to move. She's getting death threats. Her email was hacked. It is outrageous to me that any rational-minded person would sit and say, oh, well, she must have an agenda. Like, the only agenda that I see is that she wants the truth to come out. And people who aren't guilty don't hide from FBI investigations. People who aren't guilty uh, don't, usually they would ask their friends to, you know, testify on their behalf. So it's it's all very, it's very upsetting to me, this whole process, and my, my heart just goes out to her. I do want to talk about the makeup of that Judiciary Committee and the men and have a, a brief conversation about women in leadership and why it is so important um, to have women, rep and equal representation, but to have women at the highest seats of power. Because it's, it's ridiculous to me that in all these years, there's never been a Republican woman sitting on this committee. Like, I just, I can't believe that. Um, do you think things would be different if there was at least one Republican woman sitting on this panel? One would hope so. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that I tried to do in the book, and uh, Politico did an excerpt from the book about women in power and how I came to him brace and be comfortable with power here in Washington. No, no easy task. And the book is not just for women. I, a lot of guys have read it and found it useful. Uh, my husband found it useful in, <laughs> in understanding what goes on. But I, I do hope that it helps to give women the confidence they need to embrace power, understand power is not inherently bad. It's how you use it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm really heartened by the literally hundreds, thousands of women who are running at all levels for office. They won't all make it, uh, but we'll never get where we need to be unless women run. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say the same uh, that women, and particularly those millennials, boys and girls, uh, need <laughs> to come out and vote uh, in 2018 uh, to make the difference. Uh, so yes, it's tough. We're better than we were uh, back when I got started in all of this, but we still have a long way to go. I was the first woman undersecretary for political affairs ever. Uh, Secretary Clinton and uh, President Obama uh, put me in that position, uh, but it's sort of ridiculous uh, that it took until 2011 for that to happen. So, Ambassador, we'd like to end off our, um, our interviews with... Um uh, on a lighter note. Okay. Uh, and we're curious. Um, now that I'm sure you're traveling a lot and you have an incredibly busy schedule, but when you get those moments just to read something or book or watch something on TV or, or a movie, is there anything in the last few weeks or, or months that uh, really stuck out at you, really interesting that you can recommend to our, to our listeners? Well, like a lot of people I know, if I really want to zone out and not think about anything, I watch HGTV. Yes. <laughs> uh, right? What's your favorite What's your show? Favorite show? Yeah. It's, it's a hard call. It's a hard call. I don't know. Is it Chip and Joanna Gaines? Or? Uh, they, they're pretty good, but they're about to be gone. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, Property Brothers, I like yeah. to love it or list it. So you can tell I watch it. And I do that I do that just because it's completely and utterly mindless. It's about things. Yes. Uh, but it is mindless. And I think it's also about uh, partly optimism and hope mm-hmm. that people get, uh, you know, a better, get something better in their lives, help make it happen. Uh, and there are people out there ready to help you do it. It's a little <laughs> ludicrous. So that's on sort of your lighter note yeah, yeah, side. Yeah. Um, on the more serious side, um, you know, in January, I'm going to be moving to Cambridge and uh, succeeding, if one can do that, David Gergen, who's wow. director of the Center for Public Leadership, oh. and I'll be a professor of practice in public leadership. And I think that reading about leadership, thinking about, as you were saying earlier, what kind of a leader do we want? What do we expect of our leaders? How do we hold them accountable? Uh, How can we encourage young people to take on the mantle of leadership, whether that's in their PTA, uh, their local community, uh, in a boys and girls club, uh, in a think tank like the Center for American Progress, or running for office? I think it is one of the greatest challenges in front of us, uh, and uh, so I hope to be able to help do something about that. Ambassador Sherman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thinking Cap is produced and edited by Kyle Epstein. He also wrote our music. Rachel Rosen is our supervising producer. Chris Ford is our researcher. And Matt Ingram created our logo. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, and AmericanProgress.org.